Uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm 104, or you can look at it there on your prayer sheet. Uh, a little bit longer psalm uh, compared to some of the ones that we've had recently that are five or six verses. This one is 35, and so not quite as long as you know Psalm 119 kind of stands to itself, but uh, Psalm 104 is also lengthy. And so as we go down through here, um, let's start out as we typically do with uh, noting some of the poetic features of the psalm. And so uh, starting with verse 3, what do we see there in verse 3 in terms of... Okay. Okay. So being clothed in splendor and majesty. Okay. Good. And then uh, verse 2. It's rather, sorry. Okay. Yeah, I would take two and three together. So heaven like a curtain. He talks about setting the beams and the waters, the clouds as his chariots, and walks upon the wind. Um, I put that God sees heaven as both his house and his vehicle. I mean, for lack of a better description. Um, it is, he dwells with his people, but he also treads upon that which he's made for, you know, that kind of idea. But then you come to verse 4, and we have some different imagery. What's sort of the picture here? Okay. Let's develop it a little more specifically. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, it is possible that when he speaks of flaming fire, think of the sword that is uh, set at the entrance of the Garden of Eden uh, and the appearance of some of the angels. It could be that he's talking about that there's a little bit of a word play in terms of winds and spirits and that sort of idea that perhaps he's referring to the angels uh, figuratively. But I think given the description of creation, I think he is saying God uses tornadoes and hurricanes and storms at sea and all those sorts of things. And these things serve him and his purposes. They don't happen by accident which I think is a good reminder in, you know, whenever a hurricane or a natural disaster happens, there is a subset of Christians who want to say, well, you know, God, God didn't do this because a lot of people had damaged property and, you know, some people died and so God didn't want that to happen. The problem is in a well-meaning attempt to say, well, God didn't see it coming, we make God no better than us because we didn't see it coming. And that is both, I think, contrary to what we see in a verse like this and kind of a scary thing to consider. Um, but we'll keep moving. Verse 5. What's the picture here? Okay. Yeah. Nobody poured footers for the corners of the earth, right? But God established it nonetheless, right? Uh, verse 6. Yeah, it seems to be a reference to the flood in verse 6, or during creation is the other possibility. Because it happened in both instances, that it was covered with the sea and then dry land appeared, and also in the flood it was covered with the sea and then uh, when God speaks, verse 7, the sound of your thunder is probably the sound of his voice. Uh, it talks about the mountains rising and the valleys sinking down to the place he established for them. 
How about verses 10 through 13? There's sort of a picture of things with water. What, what's sort of the imagery here? Mm-hmm. It's almost like God is using a watering can or filling up a trough for the animals to drink and for the plants to grow, which we actually see then in verse 14, causing the grass to grow to bring forth food from the earth. Um, when it says the trees drink their fill, I mean, trees do take up water. It's a little bit of a personification in verse 16. Because uh, they don't drink with mouths like we do, but they do drink the water nonetheless. Um, verse 19, what's this with the sun? Yeah. Yeah, God set it on a path and it follows that path. Uh, the sun doesn't actually know it, but the sun obeys God nonetheless. Um, Appointing darkness, similarly, the contrast between day and night. God has said, sun, here's where you're going to go. Darkness, here's where you're going to go. Even though those are not actual things that are thinking beings, they obey God nonetheless, those things that produce them in creation. Um, verse 21 is interesting where it says the young lions seek their food from God. Uh, tend to think they seek their food from wherever they can find it, but... God provides for the lions, just like he provides for the sparrows, which, I don't know, some people find the sparrow imagery more comforting, probably because you don't want a lion to be <laughs> seeking its food from God anywhere near you. Yeah, yeah. You're not usually too worried about a bunch of sparrows attacking you, although it can happen, I suppose. But um, So there's sort of, and we'll get to this later, a sort of an appointing of the proper places of things throughout this section. Uh, verse... 24, when it says the earth is full of your possessions. What do you think he's referring to there? Yeah, all that God has made belongs to him. Okay. Um, and then if we come down to verse 27, they wait for you to give them food. How many of you have had a pet? dog or cat, fish for that matter, what do they do? They see you, they want food. Sometimes they don't see you and they want food and they go find you and make you give them food. Uh, a lot of parallels between small kids and pets in that regard. But uh, Yeah, but here's the imagery of all the animals on earth expectantly waiting for God to provide them with food, and he does, which is a remarkable thing. It was one thing for Noah to feed two of every animal in the ark for the time that he was in the ark, it's another for God to have done it generation after generation across the expanse of the entire world. Um, and then verse, uh, verse 28 and 29, there's this imagery of, um, or well, actually 29, we'll jump to that, you hide your face, they're dismayed. What is the hiding of his face potentially talking about? Okay, so at least a perception of God being distant, right? Whether it's due to sin or some other thing. Um, uh, there's an expression that's often in the Old Testament, God would make his face to shine on you. 
Sometimes there's literally the image of the sun shining, but there, there's a parallel drawn between that and God's favor. So if he hides his face, it's like when the clouds hide the sun. Um, there is not the light that is needed. If, if the clouds hid the sun forever, all the plants, and then ultimately we would die, right? And so God... Um, What's that? Right. Mm -hmm. So then taking away their spirit, what does that mean? Their life, their life yeah. Uh, I think the word there has more to do with breath. Um, so there's this concept starting in Genesis that God breathed into creatures the breath of life. Okay. And in animals, that's different from in humans. Uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't treat them kindly and appropriately. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of them. But it's not a one-for-one one what's going on with people. Uh, and yet God gives life and breath to all things, which I think Paul talks about in one of his sermons in Acts. Yeah, I think potentially that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the very least, there is, I mean, there's a mention of man in verse 23, but most of it is focused on the animal kingdom or plants. And then I think we could, yeah, I think if, if, we, if we don't see it in Psalm 104, we definitely see it in the New Testament that God provides what you need for your daily bread, at least building on this idea. But yeah, I think that could be a transition to people as well. Um, it's, it's just fascinating imagery in 29 through 30. God breathes out and there is life. God withdraws that breath and there is death. God breathes out again and there's uh, renewal and life again. Um, and there's a lot of creation imagery in this. Um, how about verse 32? Yeah, earthquakes and volcanoes or forest fires or any other sort of destructive force along those lines. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely could refer back to that as well. Um, while I have my being is sort of a indirect way of saying what? As long as I'm alive, right. And then let sinners be consumed from the earth is... What's going on with that? Yeah, God's judgment. So connected maybe with verse 29, but also anticipating things that will happen later on. Uh, I was just studying end of 1 Thessalonians, start of 2 Thessalonians with the 8th graders at school, and just talking about these judgments that God's going to pour out on the earth and some of the things about the timing of it. And while there have been there's been historical instances of judgments either of those with a spirit of antichrist or of disobedience leading to God's punishment over and over and over again in human history. There is going to be this time in which God withdraws his common grace and the world sort of tears itself apart morally and at the same time God is raining down judgment in various forms physically and spiritually in all sorts of ways. And so I think 
the psalmist is anticipating some of those things, uh, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. So a lot of imagery in this psalm, a lot of pictures of creation, what's going on. Uh, repeated thoughts. Uh, I think it's more of a theme than it is a phrase. So what would be sort of a theme? Okay, yeah. So we're going to have an overlap here between repeated thoughts and truths about God because they're kind of one and the same. Sometimes, sometimes the repeated thoughts, we sort of have to bring all the pieces together, but I think in this case, uh, yeah, it's very similar to what we could say about truths about God. What about creation? Dependence on God, right? Okay. Uh, and obedience to God, serving God, but very much dependence on God. And then the tail end of the chapter is basically praising God in response. The, the introduction in verse 1, and then the last four or five verses is praising God in response to all those things. What type of a psalm would we see this as? Yeah, I think it's very fits very well in the category of praise. Where he talked about truths about God, that he's the sovereign creator and director of all things, and then truths about us, that we depend on God and we should praise God for his works. And so let's just go down through the psalm here quickly and, and tie these ideas together. Uh, sometimes you know, when you and I go to pray or to sing, we wonder what it is that we should talk about. And I think in Psalm 104, the psalmist gives us a somewhat exhaustive list of all of the different topics of God's work and creation that we could praise Him for. We talked last week and maybe in previous weeks about the idea of blessing God, not adding anything to who He is as a person, but rather more orienting our opinion and the opinion of those around us toward God to say, here is, here is who God is. Here is what God is like. And so when we bless God, we are not improving God. He's not having some sort of psychological need fulfilled, but we are doing what we ought in ascribing praise to Him. And so, in this psalm, we are to bless God for all His works and creation. First of all, for His majesty, in that He dwells in and among His creation. We saw in verse 1 that He's clothed with majesty, and even a more specific picture of that covers Himself with light as with a cloak. Uh, we're getting to the season where we're all putting on coats and jackets and warmer clothes. If you were to put on your coat and it suddenly became shining brightly like the sun, you would be startled, but it would be kind of a remarkable thing. And so the fact that God can, we can conceive of God as taking the light of the sun in the universe and, and robing himself with it, putting it on like a cloak or a coat, uh, gives us this brief glimpse of the immensity and power of God. I think we see an echo or a recurrence of that in the transfiguration. His, his garments became bright. Uh, we see it again in the book of Revelation, the one who has this white robe and an appearance that's glowing as, as the sun. Um, and so all these pictures of God and His glory and majesty, the psalmist is putting it in ways that we can begin to, begin to understand. It's as though someone took the very sunlight itself and made it as a cloak as a picture of God's power. But not only does God clothe himself with creation, but God dwells in creation. He makes his house in the heavens, laying the beams, making the clouds his chariots, 
walking upon the wings of the wind. He, he dwells there. He carries about his business there. And then he sends creation out to do his bidding. In verse 4, the winds and the fires serve him. So we are supposed to bless the Lord for his majesty as he dwells in among his creation. And then in verses 5 through 30, I think we're supposed to bless the Lord for his ordering of creation. When I say ordering, I don't mean ordering like McDonald's or that kind of thing. I mean ordering like setting it in order. Uh, so God puts all the aspects of creation in order, which been involved in uh, planning different things along the way. Uh, at the moment involved in wedding planning, there's a lot of moving pieces, right? So when you're trying to organize all the different aspects of an event, you've got to say this person's going to go there, that person's going to go there, this thing's going to be here, that thing's going to be in that place. And we get quickly overwhelmed with details of those sorts of things on a really small scale. You know, it's, it's significant if there's an event that has several hundred people at it, but we're talking about a God who organizes the events of every single person's life in creation, as well as uh, all of the animals, as well as all of the sun, moon, and stars, all the stars, all the galaxies, everything in the entire universe. I step back and say, suddenly my project doesn't seem like that much to manage, right? But God does all these things at once. He orders creation. He starts out by setting boundaries for land and sea in verse 5 and following, setting the earth on its foundations, making it certain and sure and shaping the world. And then the bringing forth of the waters and then sort of the birth of the mountains and the sinking of the valleys. God does this both in creation and even in the judgment of the flood, he sort of does it again. Uh, you know, you look at something like the Grand Canyon, and people say, oh, it's amazing how the Colorado River over thousands of years has worn away grooves into the earth and made the Grand Canyon. Or millions. I mean, after you get past a couple of thousand, what does it matter? We can make up silly numbers all day long, and it doesn't really make a difference. Uh, but their, their idea is sort of this slow... Uh, microscopic change. Um, and then you see something like Mount St. Helens in the 1980. And you see a mini Grand Canyon formed in a matter of a few days to a week. And you realize if you allow for the supernatural and the unpredictable and catastrophic events, a lot of these things can happen really quickly. And so... There are aspects of our geography, particularly in places like Michigan, that seem to have been shaped by sheets of ice, glaciers, and all those sorts of things over potentially decent stretches of time. And yet, some of the things that people say, oh, this took thousands, millions of years, happen in an instant. Uh, as God basically said to the mountains, this is how tall you're going to be. And to the valleys, this is how deep you're going to be. And to the waters, here's where you're going to go. And uh, it's a remarkable thing to consider. So the land is established even when under the water, even when flooded, whether that be at creation or in the flood. And then in turn, the water provides for animals in all creation. Before we get to 10 through 13, verse 9 is really important to note. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so they will not return to cover the earth. 
So for everybody that talks about, um, you know, there's sci-fi movies like Waterworld or this and that, you know, the world is inundated with water and there's this just few pockets of land that everybody's living on the tops of the mountains. The Bible specifically says that's not going to happen because God has established boundaries, you know. We can have all this conversation about global warming and melting of the glaciers and all those sorts of things. That doesn't mean that parts of the world won't be flooded that aren't currently, but it means that there's not going to be this catastrophe that man is able to create and God can't do anything about. God establishes the boundaries for them. And instead of seeing the water then as a threat, which is what I think a lot of people see it as, uh, we should see it as God's provision. Springs in the valleys, rivers between the mountains, watering animals, uh, sort of the cycle of rain. So verse 13, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. You know, you understand how this works. The, the water goes up, it evaporates, and then it comes back down as rain, and it, it goes through the mountains and down through streams and valleys and rivers and then goes back out to the ocean, and then there's all this whole process repeats. And people are amazed that it just sort of happens. But this says, it's almost like God's up there with a watering can. All right, time to rain. And he draws it back up in the atmosphere and pours it out again. And I'm not saying God hasn't made structures to cause the earth to sort of run on its own. But he's the one who designed all these things and sustains them. And so as God... Uh, provides through the water in verses 10 through 13, then it sort of transitions to this focus on God providing food and shelter for all his creatures. The grass is watered to give food for plants, uh, and then plants, men cultivate, and animals eat the plants, and then there's all of these blessings associated with it. Uh, we for a number of reasons, get a little bit hesitant when we see this idea of wine spoken of positively or face glistening with oil because um, I think that we see primarily emphasis on the negative aspects of alcohol. And obviously, drunkenness is a sin. And when alcohol or any other substance rules your life, it's a disaster. And there's clear evidence of that in Scripture. But there are aspects of things that... Mm. there are things that are pleasurable that if done in moderation and within certain boundaries, God has given as good gifts. Some of that, I think, our perception on that shifts according to culture. So in our culture, we're trying, like, we're always using, like, things on our face or on our hair because we don't want it to be oily or greasy or sweaty, right? And here it says, if you have hair. Uh, thanks for noting that. Um... But here, it just talks about face, not hair. That was my expanded illustration. I'm sorry, I didn't apply to everyone. Uh, so that he may make his face glisten with oil. And we say, I don't know that I want my face to glisten with oil. But in their day, this was a sign of, of, of blessing, of fullness, of all these things. They had oil to anoint and, and perfumes to smell better when you weren't taking a bath all the time. And all these other sorts of things were seen as positive things. This is a description of blessings from God. But none of that would happen. You wouldn't have oil if you didn't have olives. You wouldn't have wine if you didn't have grapes. You wouldn't have any of the plants if you didn't have water. You wouldn't have water if God didn't send it forth. So there's this sort of chain reaction or a, a cycle that God has established to provide these things to bless the, the earth. Trees, which in turn make oxygen. I was just helping Maggie with a paper 
and it was about how uh, different processes put carbon dioxide in the air and then the trees take the carbon dioxide and produce oxygen and the trees wouldn't grow if there wasn't also the cycle of the water cycle putting rain down and and making them to grow and just all of these ways that God has made creation fit together he's ordered creation to provide food for his people and also shelter verse 16 emphasizes that uh, actually 17 where the birds build their nests the mountains are a place for the wild goats to dwell the cliffs are for the Shephanim which I think earlier versions of the NASB might have translated as something like rock badger it's kind of a rodent kind of creature that lives among the rocks and uh, then there's the moon that sort of there's boundaries the moon provides regular uh, cycles of the months and the sun provides day and night and then even the uh, the patterns of sunlight and moonlight and darkness provide an environment in which uh, there is shelter and food for God's creatures so at nighttime the lions uh, chase down some prey and then when the sun rises they go and rest when it's hot in the middle of the day you ever go to the zoo what's the lion typically doing taking a nap right uh, but when it's cool at the dusk and at the dawn then goes out and hunts which if you've ever had a pet cat was why they run around all crazy around those times because that's when they're normally hunting um, and this again is a sign of the way that God designed the world to function. And then people, man goes forth to his work and labor until evening. It's almost like the lions have the night shift and people have the day shift and they sort of alternate back and forth. And all this again is an illustration of how God's fit all these things together. Uh, even the sea is a place that's appointed uh, as uh, life and beauty. The sea, great and broad, swarms without number, animals small and great. Some people don't really like fish. They're kind of fascinating to me. But um, I think all of us, whether we like the idea of fish or not, whether to eat or whether to observe, there's great variety in what God has created. You go down to the depths of the ocean, there's really weird things with lights all over them and appendages that look like fishing lures and great big teeth. You come a little bit higher up. Well, maybe a lot higher up, and you have whales, you have coral, you have all of these things living in the ocean. And then man goes out on the ocean on ships, on the surface of the water. And then down below man is Leviathan, the great sea monster, below the ships, sometimes maybe catching one of the ships. And uh, there's description of that in the book of Job, this creature that dwells in the marshes or in the water that has a hide like iron and that... Um, is a picture of God's splendor in that it is near impossible for any one person, even a group of people, to defeat this creature. And uh, that, of course, obviously then leads to all of our concepts of massive sharks or eels or octopus, octopuses Locked or things like that, the Loch Ness Monster, all of these sorts of things. We were fascinated by the... We're fascinated when we're sitting in our warm living rooms well away from any water about great sea creatures attacking a ship or something like that. God designed and established the, the sea as a place for all of the creatures that live there. And then, so we, God sets boundaries for land and sea. God provides food and shelter for his creatures, a proper place for them to be. 
and then God gives and takes life from what He's made. That's what we see in verses 27 through 30. He gives food and they receive it. He withdraws favor and breath and they die. He breathes out again and restores to life. Uh, I think there's a parallel of this in Ezekiel, picture of no hope for the people of Israel, the valley full of dry bones, this vision, God's breath goes forth, the, the, the bones come to life, and now there's this great troop of people that suddenly there weren't before. And if God can restore life in instances like that, He's the one who restores, sustains, takes life all across the earth. And it's a remarkable thing to consider. Uh, we, we think that the breath of life is something that we possess in ourselves. And in reality, it's, it's sort of something that God puts inside us for a brief while and then takes away. And, you know, the old song says, we fly away. The final thing. First, bless the Lord for His majesty as He dwells in among His creation. Second, bless the Lord for His ordering of creation. And third, bless the Lord for all His works. God deserves glory and gladness for His mighty works. And this is important because, uh, as I was pointing out on Sunday, when we see this idea that we should fear God, it is a recognition of God and His majesty and His power. And there is reverence associated with it, but there's also joy. And sometimes we stop with the reverence part and we fail to have the joy part. Uh, and verse 31 is God being glad in his works. When we get down to verse 34, it's us being glad in God and his works. So God rejoices in what he's done. We then sing to God with all our being. Uh, verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. Just a picture of God's glory is this idea of the mountains the earthquakes, the volcanoes, the forest fires, all of these things are a sign of God's power. Verse 33, I sing to the Lord as long as I live while I have my being. And I think there's a sense in which then it is with all our being because we only exist to the extent that God has given us breath. And so if we only exist because God has given us breath, we owe Him all of our lives. And so we ought to then sing to praise to God all our life long with all of who we are. Meditating on what's pleasing Him, rejoicing in Him. Uh, we see that uh, at the end of Psalm 139, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This, at the end of this psalm here, there's this idea of what we think about, what we dwell on, what we focus on. That should be something that's pleasing to God. And then we rejoice in God in contrast to anything else. To the extent we have a relationship with God and we rejoice in Him, then our attitude is, um, and again, a parallel, close parallel with Psalm 139, I hate those who pursue an evil way. We struggle with this because we say, well, doesn't God hate the sin but love the sinner? And the reality is, God's attitude towards sin and sinner is that the, the sin is not disconnected from the sinner. Does God show compassion on everyone? Absolutely. But there is a sense in which God's disposition towards sinners can be described as hatred because they are refusing Him. Uh, and again, I was looking at 2 Thessalonians 1. There's this description of those who do not obey the gospel. We tend to think of sharing the gospel here, believe in Jesus. Take it or leave it. I hope you do, but eh, it could go either way. And it's a command. 
The Lord commands all men everywhere to repent, is what Paul says in his message. When we present the gospel, we should do it with a sense of urgency, like you are required by God to do this. And you can say no, but it's like refusing to take a test at school. You're going to fail. It's like um, you get pulled over and instead of stopping, you, go, you run away. There's consequences associated with choosing to refuse what's supposed to happen. And what's supposed to happen is for people to believe in and trust in God. And so the result then, if that is what God requires of people, is that ultimately we share God's disposition towards sin in that it is something that needs to be dealt with. And that's what he's calling God to do in verse 35. Let sinners be consumed, let the wicked be no more. He doesn't see it as his job to do it. God's the one that ultimately is going to accomplish it. Uh, but it is something that he is pleading with God to accomplish. Uh, there's this aspect in a lot of the Psalms and when it comes to places in the New Testament of how long, O oh Lord, is evil going to be permitted to have its day? And I think we see that same sentiment here. But then it closes on a positive note. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. So bless God for his works in all of creation.